The philosopher Simone Weil defined prayer as absolutely unmixed attention. The artist Anne Hamilton embodies this notion in her sweeping works of art that bring all the senses together. Her creations are literally astounding. Forty-two giant wooden swings that pull on a white silk curtain, an 80-foot concrete tower with a staircase that resembles a double helix. But they're also poetic and intimate. A wooden meditation boat in Laos, a pinhole camera placed inside the mouth, merging sight and voice and making photographs with every opening and closing. I think one of the questions that is behind a lot of the things I'm working on is, well, where is it that we can gather and kind of be alone together? And, uh, you know, there's so much, as we all know, us, them. And, you know, what are the circumstances for we that I can enjoy the pleasure of something I'm seeing here, knowing that I'm also sharing that with a person next to me? And there's a interesting kind of intimacy with this total stranger that this situation makes possible. And that that can change your whole day. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Anne Hamilton prefers to be called a maker rather than an artist. She also teaches at Ohio State University. I spoke with her in 2014 before a live audience at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. And I, you know, you have, um, we haven't met before. In fact, we're just now meeting. This is live. Really laying eyes on each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you've come up in the show. You and your uh, work ha- have been discussed. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And um, I'm probably going to look at my notes more than I usually do because your language is so precise and original and beautiful. Mm, thank you. And I want to really work with the way you put words together. Yeah. Um, let's just leap in. So you were born in, is it Lima or Lima, Ohio? Lima. Lima, Ohio. (laughs) And you grew up in Columbus. And uh, I I wonder if you would just, uh, you know, I think a lot of people um, speak of you as a spiritual artist Mm. or an artist who is in the realm of spirituality. I don't, I have to say, I don't really see you claiming that word so often. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think that word makes me very nervous Mm -hmm. because I don't, I don't actually know exactly what it means. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's a word that is, uh, for a lot of people, very loaded and means very particular things. Right. And so, you know, I think artists are slippery that we want to not be categorized. Right. But so if, if I ask you, you know, what was the spiritual background of your childhood in the you know, the best connotations you would mm-hmm. fill that word with. You know, what, what do you think of? Love. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a Calvinist, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, I, I certainly grew up going to church with my family. But, you know, it's hard to know sometimes what parts of that you absorb. Yeah. I remember my grandmother saying, well, just take the parts you like. And don't worry about the rest of it. <laughs> I don't think she was a very good Calvinist, by the sound of it. Uh, and, um, but also, I think growing up where, you know, you worked hard and labor was its own reward and you took care of people that you loved. And I grew up in a very tight family. Hmm. Yeah. 
so here's something you've said. I think I'm, I'm putting some words together. But you talk about the tactile experience of words and the tactile experience of things mm. as a space we are always straddling. Mm. And I'd love for you to talk about what you mean by that. And again, like trace, you know, where that awareness, how and when and where that arose in you. Um, I think I know. <laughs> uh, I, I was very close with my grandmother, and, um, you know, I have really distinct bodily memories of sitting next to her on the couch, you know, and you're little and you kind of get in that space under the, her arm, and her arms were full, and uh, we would knit or needlepoint, and she would read. And I think there's something about the rhythm of the hands being busy and then your body falls open to absorb and concentrate on what you're listening to, but not completely because you have two concentrations. And then from that, that that sort of cultivates a kind of attention that is the rhythm of those two things together. So the unfolding of the mm. voice in space and then the, the material accreting under your hand. And, and they have really different satisfactions. But, you know, you can see the material. And she was actually making... She was making. She was a maker. She was a maker. She was making sweaters. Sweaters. She was making things she wore. Yeah, or uh, we were needlepointing or I, all those lap things, mm. the... <laughs> making by hand and, and that that was tremendously comforting hmm. you know yeah. um, you also said this lovely thing that, that textiles are the first house of the body yeah the first what do you say the first the body's first extension yeah you know it's that question about like how do we know things and that we grow up or we're educated in a world that um ascribes a lot of value to those things that we can say or name. Mm -hmm. But there are all these hundreds of ways that we know things through our skin, which is the largest organ of our body. And so, you know, my first hand is that textile hand. And text and textiles are woven always experientially for me. And then um, I think that when I first started making things out of cloth, it was like it was another skin. So it was thinking about it as an animate surface and thinking about it as something that both covers and reveals. Hmm. And you also draw out um, this notion of threads, that there's the threads of sewing and, and threads of ideas, yeah. lines of speech, right, and the weaving that happens with both words and substances. Like yeah, that. and that's ancient. That is like the origins are in those for the the thread pulled from the body in so many cultures or something across space and time. Like, you know, when you're reading a book, you're immersed and you're both inside that book and you're far away in the world that mm-hmm. it might take you to. I feel like there's something, you know, as you said, this is ancient, right? That we mm-hmm. take in things through our body and it's working with our hands and that it's not all just verbal, but right. I don't know, I said, I said to somebody recently, I'm trying to think who it was, it's another interview, I feel like Descartes has a lot to answer for, I think it was Eve Ensler, oh, because mm-hmm. she, yeah. she's also so much about knowing our bodies and inhabiting our bodies, and actually how 
and trusting that We got that away knowledge. from that in Western civilization. We made everything yeah. very cerebral, including spirituality. Right. Um, and as you said, I mean, these, I don't know, the image of your grandmother with her, with the yeah. needlepoint and the knitting sweaters, it's, yeah. it's an old art. It, it feels like a lost art, but it's humanizing when we rediscover these mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's interesting because I teach in a university, and I think about where's the place in that kind of educational institution for embodied knowledge. Mm-hmm. Embodied knowledge. Embodied I love knowledge. that phrase. Yes. And, and how do we cultivate that, and how do we trust it? I think it's a big thing. How do we listen to it? Mm-hmm. Uh, that I think sometimes we're very busy giving um, what we know away because we think it doesn't have any authority, or like it's almost like we give our experiences away because we don't know how to trust. What do you mean? What do you mean that we give them away? Um, I'm thinking as an artist yeah. that that um, when you're making something, you you don't know what it is for a really long time. So you have to kind of cultivate this space around you where you can trust the thing that you can't name. And if you feel a little bit insecure or somebody questions you or you need to know what it is, then what happens is you give that thing that you're trying to listen to away. And so how do you kind of cultivate a space that allows you to dwell in that um, not knowing, really, um, that is actually really smart and can become really articulate, but, you know, like the thread has to come out and it comes out at its own pace. Right. Yeah. I'm Krista Tippett and this is On Being, today at the Minneapolis Institute of Art with the artist Anne Hamilton. It's so important yeah. just to note that what you're describing, which in some ways you receive through this lineage, I feel, of your grandmother, right? And then you've, right. you've run with it as an artist. Right. But cutting edge you know, science is now showing us that all these things that we've tried to talk about come in through our bodies first. Right. Uh, right. Including, I mean, the dark side, right? Trauma. Yeah. Um, but also our, our whole experience, our whole experience of the world is never just mental mm-hmm. or right. verbal. Right. And we're supposed to be moving around all the time. So if you need to move, no. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, and it's like, and I, I think the other part of it is that I um, think about the experience of maybe walking through the museum or taking in experience it's at the pace of the body moving through space and that it isn't that we sit and have an idea or that we sit and I don't know ingest things in a certain way it's that it's through moving in space that something becomes absorbed Mm -hmm. and comes to be felt and also what strikes me is you're talking about an experience where we kind of rediscover our wholeness right but there's Mm -hmm. also this social aspect. I mean, you said it's across space and time, right. but it's also in, um, you know, in the threads of a garment or, or mm-hmm. in, the, in the words that make a story or a book. Right. Um, it's also our connection to everyone else. Right. 
Well, and it's like like in a to go back to the knitting, like in the knitted structure, you can take a sweater or a sock and you can see each loop up and around and slip through and up and around and over and 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 so in that whole that has become, it never loses all the parts that constitute it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think that that's also been, um, you know, a part of, I don't know, structuring the work in some way where every act of it is in some ways transparently present in the material and that you can see that. Mm-hmm. Even uh, as you can see the whole, you can Even as you see can it. see the whole, you mm-hmm. can see all the parts and, and that we... Uh, you go back and forth between those. Um. Oh, so much to talk about. <laughs> um, I want here's something you can you I just, say something? Yes. yes okay. Yes. I, you, can't, you, you can interrupt me can anytime. I interrupt you? This is your conversation. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to say partly that, like, I'm a radio person. Mm-hmm. I love. I we don't have a TV in our house, and it's not because oh, I'm not going to have a TV. It just hasn't kind of ever arrived, much to my son's chagrin. <laughs> but, but I've listened to radio a lot, and so I've been listening to your program for a long time, and then the podcast. But, and the intimacy of the voice, like, like I feel like you're already my friend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and the voice coming in and being as I drink tea or I work, and, and the kind of comfort of that. And I think that partly in work, it's like wanting um, to keep that kind of intimacy that I experience with a form of radio that is the form you work in. And on the, at the same time, um, create an experience that is like everybody. Like it's like a condition that allows many, many people to occupy together even in the in their kind of aloneness. Yes. And so if I think about radio, yes. I think, you know, that someone else is hearing that in the same intimate way, and so I'm also joined to all those people. Yeah. And uh, there's something about seeking the quality of that experience <laughs> that seems very important. Um, yes, I think it can be intensely um, individual and intensely communal yeah. at the same time. A friend of mine who's a wonderful poet, Susan Stewart, said that hearing is how we touch at a distance. Mm. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> That's why we need our poets. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, and so, you know, how are... I guess in some ways, for me, what, one of the questions is how do you make uh, the condition for tactile experience, which isn't literally always touching? Yeah. But I think that's also uh, how, like, how I start projects is, in some ways, just to try to listen. And what is the form of that listening for what something needs to become mm-hmm. or to find the question? Or, you know, listening is obviously a very specific thing in a conversation, but also as a practice for me uh, because I respond to spaces, the first architecture maybe is the coat, but then mm-hmm. the next one is this building around us, and and the felt quality of that already has all this, as you say, information in it. And so it's like, what is it that he is here that maybe asks a question or that can be brought so forward? You're listening to the space. You're listening. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's also it's so true that it's. Um, I also think. Uh, I, I, Listening is 
something we really have to practice because our everyday spaces are not set up for listening. It's almost something mm. you have to it's like say, create now I'm the listen. space to do mm-hmm. and the intention to do. Or we're plugged in, you know. Like right. I, it's very hard for me to wear headphones at all or sunglasses because then I feel like I'm not where I am, wherever that is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not here. And, you know, there's some filter going on. Um, but it's also how do you listen to yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and how do you uh, trust the... Which we're also not necessarily good at. Yeah, we're, we override that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do want you to tell um, the story of one of the early, early projects you did, maybe a first project when you were a student about where you had a suit covered in toothpicks, mm-hmm. made of, which actually when you look at the picture, you kind of look like Bigfoot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why was that important for you? Because uh, you said that that was a really important yeah, project. That's a really great question. Um, I so what what Chris is describing is a is a man suit that I um, covered with thousands of individual toothpicks that had been painted black with little white tips. So I made a hide. That and I it could doesn't. Put on. I mean, the photos I said it, it doesn't look like toothpicks. It looks like. It looks like, like a, a spiny, hair, yeah, for, spiny, yes. a porcupine yes. sort of thing. And um, I was in graduate school then, and uh, I was incredibly self-conscious. You know, you're really worried about, are you, what you're, is it good? Um, there's a lot of pressure to articulate. You, you kind of leave behind, I think, when you go to graduate school, a lot of things that uh, you've shored up a tiny bit of confidence with. And mm-hmm. so... Um, <laughs> And I had made a project, maybe this is important to know, that was uh, in my first like, critique in graduate school, and it was an awful project. It was really, really bad. But I had all sorts of words that I could put with like why I had done it all. And, um, and I realized that that wasn't what I really cared about. And so I thought, is there a way to take this kind of maybe emotional predicament or the self-consciousness and find a physical form for that. And in mm-hmm. inhabiting it, does it then change my relationship to that fear or to so that self-consciousness? So the suit represented how you felt, which was all spiny and, and conspicuous. Right. Yes. That's <laughs> really interesting. Yeah. And so, you know, it's almost like if I can be in it, then um, it's like how, do you, how does your own vulnerability like them become a place of incredible strength. Mm. Mm. And that if you can just occupy that, mm. then there's a whole lot of knowledge in there. Yeah. Mm. That makes me think of something that's disconnected, but it was just on my mind. Um, somebody I interviewed years ago, Jean Vanier, who created mm-hmm. these communities around the world that are centered around people with mental disabilities. Yes. And he talked about um, the reason... He believes that so many of us are so uncomfortable with people with disabilities that mm-hmm. we all walk around all the time, you know, trying to hide whatever's wrong with us or whatever we think is wrong with us, and mm-hmm. that, that people who have who carry their, you know, their their flaws on the outside are terrifying, right? Because we spend so much energy mm-hmm. trying to keep that to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, my, I think when I first started teaching, my students called it the public humiliation class. No. <laughs> and it, and it, it wasn't that it was so humiliating. It was really that like, I was asking them to do things in public that were about taking a risk. Mm-hmm. You know, and that if you can do that, if you can let yourself fail, if you can let yourself be really bad, if you can take the risk, or just look awkward, on look purpose. awkward, <laughs> then you can do a whole lot of other things after that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Something that also is really intriguing to me is how you talk about using time, mm. time itself as a process and a material. Mm-hmm. Can you say some more about that? I, well, I think in some ways, um, I don't know the best way to say it, but that, like everybody, you know, we ha- we're, our lives are really, really busy, and we're f- fragmented in many ways. And I think that within the work, I try to make time for those things that, in some ways, it's hard for me to maybe make time for in my daily life. Huh. So in the project last year at the Armory, which was... A really large project, and and it had a whole rhythm to the day. That um, I was there every day, all day, uh, learning what it was, and and I was that I understood that it was really important for me to spend all that time to actually come to understand it. And it was interesting to then um, be joined, I think, by other people in the time there. Uh-uh. I don't think this really answers your question. But Well, but what you're getting at is um, how I, I think so many of us in our lives now, we, um, it's kind of like we receive time as kind of a bully, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's all about deadlines, and, mm-hmm. which we're not meeting. We never. <laughs> yeah. Um, We're only at the and last minute. And all things minute. we can't get to do. So yeah. it, we, we kind of receive time passively. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the physicists tell us that our whole sense of time is completely illusory. Any, right. We don't get it. We can't internalize what it really is anyway. And so what right. you're talking about is, is actually kind of claiming time as a thing that you're grappling with and also working with and actually... I mean, you're kind of insisting that it be more generous. Yeah, and I think that in many ways it's, it's like how do you um, let things take the time they actually need? Uh, it seems like this whole efficiency thing is really <laughs> doesn't work very well because, in fact, there's this thinking that's always going on inside the thing that you're engaged with. And you, you're not really having the experience if you're rushing off to the next thing. Right? So even when you're really, really compressed for time, how do you cultivate just being in the time you have at that moment? Mm-hmm. And how, do you, um, how can you just be present, even if it's like you know, a few minutes? Which is a spiritual discipline, I think. Yeah, maybe. But, but you're, I mean, it's a practical discipline, too. It's practical. Yeah. yeah. And so how, yeah, how do you kind of push things off as long as possible. And I think even in my process, like, I, I wait as long as possible to say what something's going to be. You know, I try to suspend all the possibilities till the very last moment because I know that what something needs to become will, needs all of that time. Tell me about your relationship with technology. <laughs> I mean, you said you don't have a TV, but 
You've done digital prints. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, but um, I, I think you also said some interesting things about you know, technology amplifying human presence at a distance, which, yeah. which can be, like all of this, can ha- it can be dark and light. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, the, the incredible thing about technology is it, it amplifies and extends our reach, the reach of a voice um, greater than the reach of one's touch. Um, and so I think one of my questions has been what is the value or, uh, yeah, what is the value or form of making by hand or making at the pace of the body right. when we live in this technologically extended time? You could almost say, what was, it? What was this phrase of yours, that, um, that textiles are the first house of the body, and then you said physical space is the second house, and there's a way in which these virtual spaces we inhabit are a new piece of architecture for our lives. Well, and, and, and so partly it's like, so how is that tactile? Yeah. You know, and how, where is the, and what's the nature of the we in that? Mm-hmm. And um, I haven't really done like an online project particularly, but I spend tons of time on my computer and I do a ton of research on it. And what I can find is extraordinary, yes. and I wouldn't ever want to lose that. Yeah, it's a treasure um, trove. And on the other hand, I'm scissors and glue and and scotch tape and whatever. And so that it's more like how do you balance the screen and what it makes possible with, which is often the far away with the kind of close at hand. And but you know that's also there's a generation that's growing up thinking inside the technology mm-hmm. in a way that you know, isn't my generation. Right, for whom it really is a house in a way that it's never going to be a house yeah. for someone who was 40 when it came along. Right. Yeah. You can listen again and share this conversation with Anne Hamilton through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a conversation with the visual artist Anne Hamilton. She calls herself a maker. She creates visionary installations that engage and surround the senses. A stonework wall in the middle of Battery Park City in New York, or 50,000 catalog cards at the San Francisco Main Library, each one annotated with a quote related to the book described on the card. I met Anne Hamilton as part of the Minneapolis Institute of Arts 2014 exhibit and project called Sacred. We spoke in front of a live audience there. Let's just talk for a few more minutes, and then we'll open this up. Um, There's so much I want to talk to you about. Oh, all right. So tell us about your pinhole camera. (laughs) (laughs) Um. So everybody knows what a pinhole camera no, is. No, no, you have to explain it. Oh, I do? Okay. <laughs> yes. So uh, a pinhole camera, I guess it's like the radio. I mean, it, it's, it's magic. And it's, okay, it's uh, crystal clear now. <laughs> so it's uh, a, a dark box with a tiny little hole in it. And the light that goes through that hole makes an image on the back, back of the box. And so it's the first camera. It's the... 
one of the very earliest way of making an image. And so um, I started a project where I made pinhole cameras um, that were very small that would fit inside um, the cavity of my mouth. And I started thinking about my mouth as a room. And um, I became interested in thinking about what happens when one sense is displaced to another part of the body. So if the sense of sight is joined to the place of voice, what results from that? And when, when I interviewed Meredith Monk, mm-hmm. who's a wonderful again, vocalist, artist, performance artist, um, and you've done some fabulous work with her, mm-hmm. the project that you did together called Mercy... Mm-hmm. also had this um, relationship between the mouth and the hand. Right. Again, joining those different The senses. first extensions. Yeah. yeah, and she told a story about... Um, y- you both together saw a story of a father and a son who were both shot at the Israeli-Palestinian border by both sides. Mm-hmm. These people who were in the wrong place at the wrong time in a tragic way. And Meredith talked about how you you realize that you can... A hand can hold a trigger. A hand can reach out to touch someone. Right. Right. And we made, I think at one point in that project, I mean, per- certainly we were responding politically and to the newspaper comes in every day, and that becomes part of your landscape of response, uh, what's happening in the world. And how can your small act, singular act of making, have any consequence? Um, and so the only thing you can do is think about the consequence of your immediate extension and how you do that. And so we made a list, actually, at one point, I think, of all the, the, all the things the hand can do and all of the kind of appetites and qualities of what the voice can do, and that those are actions. Hmm. And how do we own that? How do we own that? Mm-hmm. Is that partly what you're, yeah. I mean, a little bit? like? Yeah, it made me think of, um, I was in Israel for the first time a couple of years ago, and we were going to the Wailing Wall, mm. which, you know, I think I wanted to be overtaken by a sense of mystery and God's presence, and I was, in fact, was irritated by the separation of the genders, and it was mm-hmm. hot, you know, it was touristy, and... Right. But when I, have you been there? You walk up to the wall, and here's the yeah. thing. To me... It wasn't even the prayer that made it incredibly powerful. It was putting right. it was putting my hands on that wall and yeah. thinking of all the hands. million, all the hands, right, and that and you're joining those. Yes, and yeah. that felt mm-hmm. sacred. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right, and I think we're trying to, you know, in many ways, like trying to find opportunities in which we can have that experience, and and we can feel our own. Uh, presence, gesture, whatever, in relationship to that much larger one uh, across time and space and cultures. And, and so, you know, as an artist working in a contemporary context, it's like, how, do we ma- how can we create a circumstance in which um, those kinds of processes of joining and acknowledgement can occur? Here's something you said also that is related to this. The, I just, it's a beautiful thought, and I have to like sit with it. The body, through physical labor, leaves a transparent presence in material, and mm-hmm. labor is a way of knowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm always, 
going through this museum, attracted to those things where you feel the presence uh, in some way or another, or the evidence in the material of uh, the body. So the worn steps that are in a marble staircase, the, the way you feel a handrail when you go up, yeah. um, that, that consciously or unconsciously your, your body is aware of those things. And, um, and I'm just looking at where my attention falls, and it's to this odd sort of disparate category of objects, but in some ways what connects all of them is that there's some evidence of someone else's body in that object. Mm. And you know we're in a museum that is full of that. Yes, again, it, that and just is a is a way to talk about what is so special about a museum. Yeah, well, and that you fall open to those things, and yes. even if you you don't know its history or you don't know where where it's from, and you can't place it in time, there's still this recognition that is like very strong, and that recognition makes you curious, mm-hmm. and that and makes you fall open. And when you fall open to it, then your heart falls open, right? And anything is possible. <laughs> yeah. 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 So this place, the Minneapolis Institute of Arts, has a sacred mm-hmm. exhibit now. And, um, and this conversation we're having is part of this event, this sacred right. event. Um, there's some similarity between um, the atmosphere of explicitly sacred places and the atmosphere in a museum, right? I mean, how many spaces in this culture do we stand silently Mm -hmm. uh, and just take something in and soak in beauty and be in awe of that? Well, I think when you go through the doors, like when if you go through the doors of a church, you know, you... You enter that threshold, and it's a different space, yeah. and the air is different, and it's maybe more quiet. Time is different, I think, too. You, you're willing to just sit and be. And I think that we come needing that a lot to the museums, very mm-hmm. much so. Mm. Never thought about that before. And, um, and I think also as an artist, you know, I'm very... Um, I think one of the questions that is behind a lot of the things I'm working on is... Well, where is it that we can gather and kind of be alone together? And, and uh, you know, there's so much, as we all know, us, them. And, uh, you know, what are the circumstances for we that I can um, enjoy the pleasure of something I'm seeing here, knowing that I'm also sharing that with a person next to me? And there's an interesting kind of intimacy with this total stranger that this situation makes possible. And uh, and that that can change your whole day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's it's another one of those experiences. Like we were talking about radio. I mean, or, or it's that it's communal and individual at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think that that alone and that together, art is like that too. Yes, that um, maybe too much together makes us really nervous. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but the. The alone together is something that I think we're trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm at the Minneapolis Institute of Art with the artist Anne Hamilton. I read something when I was um, preparing. that It was from the New York Times, 1999, which is another century. (laughs) But I mean, a long time ago, but it was about... 
It was about an installation you did called Mayen. I don't even know how to say it myself. Yeah, I actually. good. I didn't either. <laughs> okay. It's Greek. apparently the Greek root of the word mystery. Um, anyway, you said something. Well, this is what the Times said, that it was about how we know what we know and what we blind ourselves to, mm. how the invisible affects us and how the visible can be veiled. And mm-hmm. it's such a wonderful image and we don't have time to go into it, so we'll just let it sit there. Um, but you said, I'm thinking, this is 1999, that I am the American representative mm. and it's the eve of the millennium. Mm-hmm. I want to bring to the surface the questions we should be asking. Mm-hmm. I'm just that's so intriguing to me, and I guess I'm wondering what questions you think we should be asking now, here, yeah. <laughs> in this young, tumultuous, you know, amazing century. Well, how to be together? I mean, isn't that that seems like the biggest question, you know? And how 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 to be together? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that uh, every project. In some ways, it, it forms by maybe feeling that I have the right question for it. And everything else is kind of debris until I can kind of get to that. Let's do a little, let's, let's have a conversation with you. Um, I don't know how this is working. Are there some microphones, I believe? Oh, back here. All right. Yes. Um, many of Krista's questions and, and your responses reminded me of a beautiful installation piece of yours that was at Mass Mocha Mm -hmm. that was in a space that actually looked quite Mm cathedral-like. And then there was a balcony that actually had pews in it of some kind. But I wondered if you could just say more about that piece in the context of this discussion. Uh, And what was it called? It was called Corpus. It was... I mean, one, it was a huge old industrial space where they had once manufactured capacitors which store energy and then release it. And it also had been a textile factory where they had dyed, and so uh, dyed cloth. And, and so... <laughs> they had dyed. <laughs> and and the, uh, it had once been the room that you're describing with... Uh, there were many mechanisms that were powered by air that were... dropping single sheets of white paper to the ground from like 30 feet. And there was a rhythm to that, like that you could hear the air kind of like breath. And um, a piece of paper might draw your attention because it catches the light. Or a recorded voice raising and lowering from a set of bell-shaped speakers might draw your attention because it pulls you this way in this enormous landscape of this old industrial architecture. And I think that that actually opened my work up for me a lot and, that, and made me, uh, perhaps helped me understand and articulate a little bit that, that the piece is, a, is um, not about defining the nature of that experience, but making a condition within, within which you can wander around and um, pay attention to the things that your attention are, is drawn to. And, and in that grows the project. I kept thinking um, when I was reading about how you approach your work and Uh objects and placement and this word attention, you just use the word attention, of this um, beautiful definition of prayer by Simone Weil, Mm -hmm. absolutely unmixed attention is Mm. prayer. Mm. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. 
I'll take that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Was there one more question? I don't know where the... I can't see where the microphone is. Yeah, there's is. one right here. Okay, let's do one more question. Uh, well, for so many of us here who are makers and um, <laughs> teachers and perhaps also parents, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to how those things inform each other in your life and also how you keep the maker part of you um, alive with enough, enough time and enough nourishment mm. to not feel like you're always uh, clawing at the small amount of time or mm. space in your head that you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I sense something. Yeah, here. So <laughs> tiny bit of desperation, maybe. Yeah, I, uh, I'm just saying maybe. <laughs> well, I think um, when my son was born, uh, you know, I think I just had to learn how to make differently. That that uh, you know, it happens in your kitchen, and that it hap- it, it just happens differently. And I think there was a process of trusting that. Just because you can't be in whatever studio, whatever you call your studio, doesn't mean that you're not having a thought <laughs> or insight or something. And, and I, I think it's that if I conceive of them as being separate, then I will be forever frustrated. But if they're all one practice, and every project is, and all the projects are one big project, then, <laughs> then I think I you know, not that we don't feel pressed for time in some ways, but then there's an anxiousness that I can at least delay a little bit. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes the most important thing you need to do is, like, make the soup. And, <laughs> and in the soup is going to be the project, even though, you know, a kid is sick upstairs, and that's why you're making the soup or whatever. And, uh, you know, I learn, and I, like in teaching... Um, I learn a lot from my students, and I think that it's reciprocal. It's like everything is reciprocal, and everything feeds everything else. You you do um, like this language of being a maker, mm-hmm, I think, very much. as much or maybe more than being called an artist. And yeah. uh, and it's just occurring to me that 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 language lends itself to the rest of us too. I mean, mm. being an artist is specialized, but it, mm. just thinking about making as something we all do each in our own ways, mm-hmm. including in our family lives. Um, and there's so many forms for making. I mean, I've, I've said this before, but I'd like to say it again. Yeah. Is that in the, um, like I love reading the dictionary. And the Oxford English Dictionary has, I don't know how many pages to vote, devoted to, to make and making and all of its possibilities. And I think that's like making, it's the same as like making a list of all the materials that exist in the world that you might transform in some way. And it's like if you make that list and you take the list of every, all the possibilities of what making is, like that can just keep you busy forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but and, it also and you never even get around to the making. Yeah, but it makes you feel like it's like you see the possibilities. Like we get blinded to the yeah. possibilities that we actually have. And I think that's so you have these little tricks that you do with you play with yourself to see those. I everybody should try that. That one. <laughs> the list. The list. I'm yeah. also pretty intrigued by the idea of reading the dictionary. I never thought of that. Oh, it's so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I believe you. I just had never thought of it before. Yeah. 
Well, and it's because like, it's just as materials obviously carry histories of the animal or the technologies that made them or where they came from in the earth, that words also carry all of those histories. Yeah. And um, although that's not my area, I, uh, I, there's a reason certain words work, and it's because of the histories that they carry for us. Mm-hmm. So um, lifting that to the, to the surface is... Uh, of recognition is important. Mm. Yeah. And so you um, now live in Columbus again, is that right, in mm-hmm. Ohio? And yeah. uh, I don't know, someplace you were talking about, this is another interview, my life is busy, I travel a lot, but the, within that my life is very domestic. You're married, you have a son, you have a cat and a dog. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. You live in a, an American neighborhood. Um, mm-hmm. And at, but as an artist, as a maker as a professional maker, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're exotic, right? You're doing things that are very <laughs> original and out there. And, mm. and um, mm-hmm. I'm just curious about, um, do you, t- I wonder how you interact with your neighbors in your ordinary American neighborhood in Ohio. <laughs> like, how, not, not they how don't think inter- I'm exotic. <laughs> <laughs> right. But how do you, do you think about talking to them about, you know, like something like the exhibit you're doing at the Armory or the Tower in California or the Meditation Boat in Laos, I mean, um, or wading through paper and, you know, about how that is connected to this very common longing, Uh uh, you know, that's come through again and again of just, you know, who are we now and and what what are we to each other? Yeah. Uh, Well, I'm really lucky to live someplace where my neighbors are friends. You know, and I've been there now a long time. You know, I've been there since the early 90s. And um, so, for instance, down the street are um, two friends who are both singers. And although their day jobs are different um, than that, you know, when I started to work on the armory, I talk to them a lot about voice. And I go hear them, and I learn from them. And, and they help me trust what I'm doing. And, and they contribute to it a lot. Uh, and I had a most amazing conversation a few nights ago with my neighbor who has just moved in, who's a sophomore and has moved from China to go to school mm-hmm. at OSU, where I teach. And he had been to an art event at the Wexner Center, and it had been a music video, a music concert with live mixing of video. And he, it was such an intense experience for him. He didn't know what to do with it. The, the video? The, the experience of the performance. Mm-hmm. And so he came next door. It's like 11 o'clock at night. And he came over <laughs> to bring me my cat back, who goes and lives in his house when we're out. And it's cold out. And he came over, and he wanted to... We talked for probably two hours about how he felt. And he didn't know what to call this thing. And he said it made me feel things. I, I didn't know how to process. And it was really scary. And... So it was effect that this art was having. And is this new? Is this the new art? Uh-huh. And that it, it, he kept talking about how it felt on his skin. How the experience of watching felt on his skin. Yes, he was speaking your language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh huh. And so he's a new neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, you know, I think that I, I know when you look at the projects. Uh, when they're finished or from afar, you know, they look sometimes 
enormous, and they are in enormous spaces, or they happened over a long period of time. But it's really one tiny little step after another, and it's it's an associational process. And pretty soon, you know, they arrive like a sweater being knitted into this larger thing. And um, and it's just it's it's there's something actually kind of very practical about it, and very mundane, and really, you know, uh, ordinary. It's like there's a pragmatism in it Mm -hmm. that I think is really part of how I get there. And on the other hand, I love huge volumes of space. Like like being in a gigantic space is something that, um, you know, it's like you feel it here. And and so um, on the one hand, there's this really practical step, step, step. And on the other hand, it's like, you know, it's like wanting to fling yourself into something that's, Gigantic and will absorb you, and it's kind of scary. Mm. And I mean, even transcendent in a way that it then it transcends all those pragmatic steps mm-hmm. along the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And together, too. Yeah. So. Okay. Thank Anne you, Hamilton. Thank you. Thank you. It's been really delightful. Mm-hmm. Thanks everyone for yeah. coming. Thank you. Anne Hamilton is a distinguished university professor in the Department of Art at Ohio State University. You can listen again and share this show with Anne Hamilton through our website, onbeing.org. We've also posted images and video of some of her work there. And you can sign up for a weekly email from us, a letter from Loring Park. In your inbox every Saturday morning, a curated list of the best of what we are reading and publishing, including writings by our weekly columnists. This week, read Parker Palmer's essay, Breathing New Life into We the People. Read his column and others at onbeing.org. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Terrell, Annie Parsons, Tony Berleffi, Marie Sambole, Tracy Ayers, and Hannah Rehack. Special thanks this week to Elizabeth Armstrong, Susan Jacobson, Nicole Sukup, and Brian Tai at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Also, Nicole Rome and Nicole Gibbs from Ann Hamilton's studio. Our major funding partners are the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. The Fetzer Institute, fostering awareness of the power of love and forgiveness to transform our world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. And the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.